You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. It's delicious. That's what we have on our side, is that we have beauty and taste and conviviality around a table. I mean, these are irresistible things, you know? Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. For this episode, I sat down with the incomparable Alice Waters. Where to start? A food legend. Alice is the founder and owner of Shape and East Restaurant in Berkeley, California. She's a champion of local and sustainable agriculture and has been for decades. Alice is credited with what we call California cuisine. She is a pioneer in the food world. People say she is the mother of American cooking. Alice is credited with acknowledging farms and farmers on menus in restaurants. So when you see Mary's Chicken or Klug Farm Berries, you can credit Alice Waters years ago for acknowledging farms. Alice is an advocate for so many things, but she's been a huge advocate for school food. She's also a big advocate for free school lunches coast to coast. She has an incredible organization called the Edible Schoolyard, which if you have not heard about, I urge you to check out. It's in about five cities now. And I personally visited the one in Berkeley as well as New Orleans. She calls her Edible Schoolyard an education of the senses. Alice was also integral in implementing the gardens at the White House. There was one on the roof with the Clinton administration that she wrote a letter to them to do. And she also was instrumental in Michelle Obama's garden on the South Lawn. We're going to hear something really interesting because I heard she was in the middle of writing a letter to Jeff Bezos post him buying Whole Foods. And we're going to hear what radical ideas she has for Jeff Bezos to change our whole food system. I'm going to cut it here, but please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Alice Waters. You've been called a pioneer of this movement, if you will. How does it make you feel, the word pioneer? I don't really feel like a pioneer because I feel like these ideas have really been around since the beginning of civilization. <laughs> the idea of taking care of the land, uh, the idea of eating together, the idea of celebrating the harvest, of always eating locally. Um, it's, it's just been a, a sort of a primary right of civilization to gather at the table. And I learned all of this when I went to France and, and lived there for a year when I was 19. And it just was an awakening of all of those values. And I brought them back home to California, to Berkeley. And I wanted to live like that. But they aren't new. They just seem new because we live in this fast food culture that has a whole different set of values. I feel like what comes along with that fast food culture is convenience for people. And there's fast food restaurants that are putting, you know, what they say are better for you foods. But, it, but you also see some more fast casual places popping up that have a focus on 
healthy food. I really feel like they're taking our values of health and aliveness and from the farm and, and trying to use them to sell the products that they have. We have to be very careful about it. We have to really connect with those farmers at the farmer's market and find out the truth because dishonesty is one of the values of a fast food culture. Just that, the idea that everything should be available 24-7. The idea that it's okay to eat in your car, that food should be cheap. It's never been cheap. It's something, it's been affordable, but, but cheap means that you're really not paying the people who are growing your food the right amount of money. It's okay to waste. Well, it's not okay to waste. Food is, is something that is, you know, really meant for our nourishment, and we want to use all of it. And, and again, that fast food culture is saying, it's okay to waste. There's always more where that came from. Food waste, I feel like, is a big buzz term now, although it's been happening for years. But food waste is incredible. The amount of food that does get wasted, not only here around the world, but just from so many different levels, from a farming level, from a home cook level, from a restaurant level. Exactly. I mean, I even struggle with it. I mean, thank goodness I have my compost pile out back, but I don't want to waste. I don't want to. And and yet everything in our culture is telling us, you know, just buy more. Yeah. So you mentioned farmers, which I think are an incredibly important group of people. As I've researched a little bit, it seems like the average age of farmers is going up. You've been an endless advocate for farmers and the farming industry by showcasing farms and farmers on your menus and things like that, which is a lot more widespread now, which is a great thing. But is there a concern that family farms are going away or how do we help keep them alive? Well, I have a big idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready for it. You're ready for it. (laughs) I think we should have school supported agriculture, like community supported agriculture. When you tell a farmer you're going to buy everything that they have and pay them no matter what. And you become, you, you become a, a sort of co-producer with them. You connect with them. And um, that's what I think could happen in this country. What if we What if we bought all the food from schools locally and from people nearby, really, and organic food, food that was produced by people who take care of the land for the future generations? How's that? How is that's fantastic? And I know Rachel Ray, who I work with, is gonna gonna hear this and say, "Abby, get on that and write a letter to Alice." And I want to do that with her. Well, I think it's the only way really, that we're going to bring children into a healthy relationship with food and the community, the way we're going to really embrace the ideas of, of, you know, of nourishment and sustainability. Because we, we don't have the time and attention in the sort of fast food cafeteria to to take care of our kids. And if we made school lunch free and sustainable and part of an 
academic curriculum, we could do something amazing. I agree. Rachel always says that the school food is one of the only level playing fields we have. It's our last truly democratic institution in this country, yeah. as Gloria Steinem says. And I really believe that it's the one place we can reach every child and tell them that we really care about them and bring them to the table. Because as you said before, 85% of the kids in this country don't have one meal with their family. Mm -hmm. So they're out there just grazing and absorbing the values of a fast food culture. And I think we, we need to get, come back to our senses. <laughs> right back to the book, which we're going to touch upon. So we talk about schools and kids, and I'm going to jump right into you started the Shape and East Foundation over 20 years ago. Is it, is it the Edible Schoolyard Project? Is that the current name of the That's foundation? That's the current name. Okay. So 20 years ago, and I visited the Berkeley one and Martin Luther King School. I visited the New Orleans one and got a tour. So I've seen it in action and, and it's inspiring and it, and it works. Tell us about that. Well, I think the reason that it works so well is that I used my Montessori teaching. I was a Montessori teacher before I started Chez Panisse. And it's a tried and true pedagogy that whose main idea is interactive education. And it's focused on uh, education of the senses. So it's trying to engage kids uh, through touch and smell and tasting and listening and seeing. I mean, it's, it's really a way to open their minds because our senses are those pathways there. And so I just used edible education as a way to bring children's attention uh, and to empower the kids, really to empower them. And do you feel or hear that, we hear this a lot, that the, it's the kids these days that are teaching their parents about food and cooking? Do you ever hear that? Yes, I do hear that. That's incredible. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> when did you have, did you have an aha moment with this? when you started the Edible Schoolyard Project? I had the aha moment when the principal of the Martin Luther King Middle School invited me to come and take a look at the campus to hmm. see whether I may make a garden there. And I've walked around this, this very large campus that was built in 1921 on 17 acres of land. Many schools in this country were, were built it around that time and had on big pieces of property. Most of it has been, of course, uh, asphalted over and <laughs> there are no lawns anymore. But this school had this potential and I walked around and I said, oh my God, I see a garden there. And I see a kitchen classroom. Over there we could build a huge cafeteria so that all the kids could come and sit down. And this is a school with thousand kids and they spoke 22 different languages at home. and I just had this vision oh my goodness they could all sit down and eat lunch together and uh, 
the principal said, well, thank you very much. I'll get back to you. <laughs> but he did. Six months later, he got back to me and he said, let's begin with the garden classroom. And I never thought of it as gardening per se. It was always a math class or a science class. And the kitchen classroom was never really about learning to cook. It was learning history through food. So that when they were learning about the Arabian Peninsula and the geography, they would be cooking the food of that place. I wish I could go back to being a kid and do that. Oh, it's so great to see the kids engaged in this way because it it doesn't feel like a crazy uh, classroom. It feels so civilized. They like to set the table. They like to have the conversation. They like to be, you know, really using sharp knives and, and uh, feeling, you know, that they could accomplish this by themselves. Yeah. Is there a reason to or not to? I know you're in I want to say like five cities or so right now, but is there a reason to or not to scale it? Because with all you've done, I'm sure you could ask a hundred chefs around the country <laughs> and all hundred will say, yes, I'll start an edible school well, year project. you know, I don't think of scaling in the way that fast food culture scales. I don't want to own it. Not scaling I don't want to scale. make a pile of money off of it. I think of scaling in the way that people adopt a set of values and that they're going to teach stewardship and going to teach about nourishment. They're going to teach about, about communication because those are the values we need to live on this planet together. They're going to teach probably beauty as a language of care because that's something that we've learned that's very, very important. And the kids learn by doing. They learn by doing. So almost if someone takes these values of stewardship and gardening and everything you just said yeah. and makes it their own and does their own project, that's okay. They don't need oh, to call it the edible it school is. Year project. We started doing, um, you know, being very involved with different schools in different regions of the country uh, because it was important to know whether it worked like in New Orleans or in upstate New York or in the big city of New York. We did these initial projects, but then we realized that they didn't need us. That they, I mean, maybe I could help with fundraising, but they didn't really need us. That, that they had the ideas and they adapted them to the culture of their community. And I was just so delighted to go and see how they breathed life into these values. That's so exciting. Can you give the current state of our country a food report card? Oh, we have a very bad report card. <laughs> very bad report card. Because believe it or not, the people that are eating organic food and supporting those farmers that take care of the land is very small, very small percentage of people in this country. I don't know what the actual percentage is, but I think it's under 10%, which means that fast food is our diet. It really is. And maybe it's slightly healthier than it was, but and, and I know the organic segment is growing madly. 
But we need to really have it grow. And the reason why I am hoping that public schools will embrace this idea. Like, like they have in New York City, they, they have decided that every child's going to eat for free in New York. I saw that. Now we just need them to eat organic better. local yeah. food. <laughs> yeah. What do you say to people who want to eat locally, organically, that they say it's for the elite or something like that? Or how do we make this easier or accessible for someone who may not have, you know, disposable income to go and purchase everything organic? Are there steps that they could take? Well, I think it's really important for everybody to understand what the work of farming entails or what it is to raise chickens. We need to see what that work is about and really learn how to cook using all of the vegetable, you know, that we buy, that we don't, that that cooking makes it really affordable. I mean, I, I always say that I can make three meals out of an expensive organic chicken. Jose Andres says he can make six. Great. This is a good challenge we have it's going here. It's a really here. good challenge. Yeah. We should have that challenge. Uh, how do we cook without... I mean, we have to use meat more as a condiment rather than the main thing. Mm. We need to think of the proteins of beans and rice. And there are so many countries in the world that have basic diets of nutritious and really delicious food. And I hope that that can be what we're learning to cook in the schools, that we can all take a very big cooking lesson that way. Are there, for someone who says, oh, I don't buy, I buy a lot of produce, I don't necessarily eat organically, you could come across a list that say, here are the top 10 foods if you're going to buy organic. Are there any foods you would say, or is that not what you like to hit upon? <laughs> <laughs> that are really affordable? Yeah. I, I mean, squash. Squash. Oh, winter squash. What could be more delicious? Kids love it. All you do is cut it. Put it in on a roasting pan with a little olive oil and salt, and wow. Yeah. I mean, and it keeps, and you can eat it for a couple of days. And and I just, uh, I make some brown rice, and I, with squash and herbs, and uh, I, I find it so gratifying. And, and I like, I, I don't like being at the mercy of, of, the fast food industry, no matter where I go. That's, I seem to get sirens every every city I'm in. When I was talking with Rick Bayless the other week, it was right in the path of the fire station. <laughs> New York, obviously, there's no getting around it. Yeah, but I think that that's something really important. I, I, I Wherever I go, I take my own food with me. Really? Yes. Whenever I go on a plane flight, or if I'm not sure whether I'm going to find something when I'm driving from San Francisco to Los Angeles, I bring my own lunch. And I, then I'm never put in a position where I have to buy something that I know is not good for me or good for the land. Yeah, it's truly your lifestyle. So it's, it's really committing yourself to eating with determination. You know, yeah. just... The good part about it is it's delicious. This is true. And that's, 
that's what we have on our side is that we have we have beauty and taste and uh, uh, conviviality around a table. I mean, these are irresistible things. We have a fire. We have we have joy. You know, oh, that's great. So you're also, people have also said you're the mother of American cooking. How would you define American food or American cooking? It's hard for me to define it I, uh, because we are a very big country. And it so depends for me on the growing season and the influences of the different uh, people who who live in that region. I'd say that we've been very influenced at Chez Panisse by, by Japanese American uh, food, by uh, Mexican-American, for sure. We use a lot of those spices in the cooking at the restaurant. I mean, we... we cook outside a lot so we're grilling food um it's it's feels like really california american cooking i want to get into shape anise a little bit so you opened it 46 years ago and from what i've heard you really didn't open it to be a restaurant you had an intention more so to bring your friends and family together to eat is that right well, that was kind of the idea, <laughs> that I wanted it in a house, and I only wanted to serve one thing. And uh, I just thought people would come and feel at home there. How has Chez Panisse changed your life, or how did it change your life? Does it still change your life? Yes, it does change my life all the time. It's always a challenge. I think if it weren't a challenge, I would have to do something else. Although I have done something else. <laughs> kind of keeps you on your toes, I suppose. It keeps me on my toes. But, but it's shape honey's that really validates me in a way that I, I know I'm on the right path. I'm, I'm constantly going back and seeing what people want to eat and how they're eating and, and what they're talking about. And it really informs the Edible Schoolyard project that I know that people's tastes change and the way that they want to eat. And I just want to keep close to that. Perfect segue into what I wanted to touch upon next, which was Chez Panisse will, within a three, four, soon be turning 50. <laughs> <laughs> Big five zero. So you touched upon... How, you know, how you do keep it relevant or exciting. But with that, do you feel, do you ever feel you have to compete with like a new generation of chefs or techniques or do you even want to? I'm always interested in what, what young people are thinking. Yeah. There's no question about it. But I'm looking for a kind of simplicity in the food. And I'm more interested in what young farmers are growing right now. And I have two friends that are on the East Coast and they have a 10 mothers farm. And uh, I always look at their Instagram and I just marvel because they're cooks and they've worked at the Edible Schoolyard in Brooklyn and in Berkeley. And to see what they are growing and selling, 
is really an inspiration to me. So I'm really uh, excited about who can grow what where at every time of the year. I think of Will Allen up yeah, there. Yeah, growing power. And he's <laughs> and great. He's fantastic. I, I was in his greenhouses this last spring, and there he had cardoons, a whole, you know, gigantic greenhouse full of cardoons. And he grows all winter long when it's freezing cold. And he's using a compost and waste from the brewery industry to fire up those greenhouses. And I just am so inspired. And I, same with Elliot Coleman up there in Maine. He closes in the summer and all winter long. He grows the herbs and, you know, carrots for schools and people to buy. I mean, I couldn't live the winter without having a greenhouse if I were in a cold place and, of course, vegetable storage. But we don't have any tomatoes at Chez except for three months out of the year. We're eating root vegetables from November on, but now we have all the heritage varietals. So we can have a beautiful winter array. And we're eating winter greens. Some of them grow outside, and some uh, winter salads. But, but we, we really count on... Um, we, stay exactly in season. And so we're not ever trying to jump the season. We, when we come to asparagus in March, well, we're there for two months. And then when it's over, it's over. And we're on to the next thing. And I, it's the pleasure of my life to anticipate instead of eating second-rate fruits and vegetables all year long. I just don't want to do it. Yeah, that's, that's it's so fascinating because here you are, what you've done on the West Coast, and you usually have people in the Midwest or the East Coast saying, oh, well, California, they have everything all the time. But here you're drawing inspiration. You're talking about farms that are in the mid-Wisconsin, in the Midwest or the East Coast. You're seeing what they're up to. It's true uh, because it's, I mean, we make mulberry syrup so we can have it in the winter. You have incredible mulberries. Uh, uh, in New Jersey and I just think of all the syrup that could be made and I, I think when people and tomatoes I've never had better tomatoes than on the east coast in the humid place we have lots of them but not with that kind of taste of Michigan and to can those or to dry those I mean it's, it's amazing you can take the lemons the Meyer lemons and preserve them in salt and I, I just think we have left behind way behind in, a, in countries around the world uh, the ways of preserving food for other times of the year to be eating only what's local and in season. It's becoming very fascinating to me. I've always been in, interested in pickling and jams and canning, yeah. but I haven't done a ton of it myself, but I talked with Magnus Nilsson from Favakin in Sweden, and he has this whole root cellar, and he basically 
only has enough to feed his guests through the winter. But it's very fascinating stuff. Well, it is fascinating. I studied a lot of what was grown at the potager for the king of France, Louis XIV. He fed 10,000 people out of that garden. But they were growing uh, figs in Paris at that time. And they would cover them in the winter with hay to protect them during the winter. But it's amazing what you can grow where. And I just think we have been so limited by the, again, the fast food culture that wants us all to be eating the same 24-7. So speaking of new generation, I know you've been an inspiration to so many chefs, not even around the country, around the world. Uh, Many who have worked in the kitchen at Chez Panisse or those who have dined there or, or have not even been there. But who did you look up to when you were in your early days of Chez Panisse? Well, I was very lucky because the first cookbook I was given was uh, Elizabeth David. And there was a little bookstore in Berkeley, cooking ware and bookstore. And this woman, Jean, often just said, here. And then she would bring different cooks she admired from around the country to bring their cookbooks and do cooking demonstrations. So I met Diana Kennedy early on, and I met Mother Joffrey. And so those three people became real mentors of mine. Um, uh, And, uh, of course, two of them still are mentors in their 90s. They are amazing. And then I was given Richard Olney's book. He came to Chapinese very, very early on within the first five years. And he was such a, um, such a purist, I would like to say. He had a garden and lived in France and wrote such wonderful, inspiring books that we cooked out of them in the early days always and uh, that was that was a really great foundation for me yeah what chefs are you excited about these days well I'm excited about every chef who (laughs) buys food from the farmer's market who supports those farmers directly and brings it into the kitchen whether it's the middle of the winter or in the summer and I know that they're, and I really admire chefs who wanted to run their restaurants as a way of life. That they're not thinking, how are we going to scale this? But that are really thinking, I, I want to know the people who are coming into the restaurant. I want to have my kids here. Um, that's uh, a phenomenon. Uh, well, actually, it, it's been the way that restaurants have existed forever and ever in countries around the world. And those were the restaurants that I always ate in in Paris when I was 19 because they were uh, 
uh, they felt so intimate and so uh, friendly and and just not you know a big noisy scene but i I know that there are people that that have all different talents and um, i'm I'm so inspired by the way that they're running restaurants uh, differently, not huge, but differently than I would have imagined. Can you share with us, you've had plenty of celebrities and world leaders and food authorities and all these folks through Chez Panisse over the years. Can you share with us a, a, a fun or memorable evening at Chez Panisse that pops into your head? And I was just talking about the Garlic Festival at Chez Panisse when Les Blanc came and filmed it. That whole festival that, that we've been celebrating since 1975 has been um, sort of an hilarious experience. <laughs> Is that the, the big garlic festival? Well, it's Bastille Day, too. It's on the 14th of July. So we always have French music happening at the restaurant. And people don't want just garlic in the food like we normally have. I mean, they want whole baked cloves of garlic. (laughs) And they want to smear them on the chicken and on the bread. That sounds delicious. And and we even make garlic ice cream. Do you? I had that one time. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had it a second time. I know you've written... You wrote a letter, I believe it was to either the Bush administration or Clinton administration about putting an organic garden at the White House. And I believe one of them did on the rooftop. And then you wrote another letter for the Obama administration, which the first lady did the organic garden on the South Lawn, which is an incredible garden. Do we know if that garden has stuck? Have you heard anything with the new administration? (laughs) Well, I can't imagine. My fingers are crossed. No yeah, one can see. fingers are crossed. <laughs> yeah. But it really began with the Clinton administration, and it was Hillary that, that put uh, all of her tomato plants on the roof. But I really always had in mind uh, that there should be a garden visible to people to, to show that we believed in in the growing of organic vegetables, that that it would tell the world that we embraced uh, the values of sustainability and nourishment. <laughs> and so I, I was just thrilled at that, that Michelle Obama planted a garden with young people, with students from schools, and the pictures of her digging in the garden there went around the world. They went around this country and people started planting because she had done that. And that's the idea that that we need to really spread around this country. People who have the possibility of planting gardens in very civic places need to do so. There's two things I want to do some shameless plugs. Actually, only one of them is. One is... 
with Rachel's magazine, Rachel Every Day, we're doing a program soon called Feed It Forward, where we're letting people send in someone that they want to acknowledge in their community for doing great things, whether it's saving food waste, planting gardens, and then we're going to give them a grant and a mentoring uh, session with some folks. What a great idea. So we're, what a great we're, idea. We're really excited about that. And then I wanted to tell you, I know the Obama Foundation just announced some of the work they'll be doing here in Chicago, and I think soon they're going to be doing an Obama f- summit. We should talk about you doing something with gardens in a huge way in Chicago and beyond. Well, I think the soil is very fertile here in Chicago, and I think there is a lot of potential to make something happen in the public school system. I'm very optimistic. We had a fundraiser last night for the Edible Schoolyard Project, and I was... Real please. Excellent. I'm, I'm on the uh, Chicago Public School School Food Advisory Council, so I may know, I may have an in there to... Please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. I want to have a, 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 a tiny bit of fun. I know in the New York Times, you talk about food being, and you mentioned this earlier, organic and beautiful and shared with others, which I truly believe in as well. You said you're single in the Times with Kim Severson, and and um, but you're open to meeting with someone. Is there any any Hollywood celeb crush type that you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, we all love Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, and he's an ambassador oh, for nice. the Edible School Year Project. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's so great. I didn't know that, but that's so good to hear. Would you ever, if you were dating someone, would you let the man cook for you? Of course. <laughs> I've always loved that. And I, I have my ex-husband was a very good cook. And I, I think that's the great fun of being with somebody that, that likes to do that. Yeah. And it's, you always need that, that help in the kitchen. And it's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, that's exciting. What words would you use to describe yourself? I guess determined would be one, but romantic would be another. Nice. If I asked a, a cook or a chef in your kitchen, what three words or any words would, you, would they use, do you think? She always has a good critique. She has good taste, and I want to know what she's thinking. I love that. I, w- I, I hope that that's how they yeah. <laughs> are interpreting my, my feedback. But I think of all the cooks in the kitchen as colleagues, and that we're trying to get some place that, that is greater than the sum of the parts. And when you think about it that way, Everybody's voice is valuable. And it's, we don't run the kitchen in a pyramid style. We run it in a really um, collaborative way. And even the interns that we have in the kitchen uh, have a voice. And the chef, whoever is the chef, makes the final determination. But they're asking for other people's opinions. Very important. 
Have you really not stepped foot in a regular grocery store in like 25 years? <laughs> Is <laughs> Do you that believe true? everything you read? No, no I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in general, yes, that is absolutely true. I have been in them because I'm curious about something or desperate. That's the only times I go to a little small health food store when I don't go to the farmer's market, but I regularly go to the farmer's market every week that I'm in town. I'm at the Ferry Plaza Market in San Francisco. I always go there, rain or shine. Uh, And, of course, I shop at Chez Panisse. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. So Amazon takes over Whole Foods, and I hear you're possibly working on a letter to Jeff Bezos. Could Whole Foods be the first grocery store that you frequent? Well, I've had some pretty radical ideas about what Jeff Bezos could do. I and can't I wait hope, to hear I that. hope that, that with his money that he could really change our food system in a dramatic way. And I, of course, I had a really out there idea, which is to gut all of the Whole Foods companies um, and make them into indoor farmers markets and invite all of the people who live in that area to bring their food and sell it and receive the money directly from the people who patronize. It's like the indoor markets all over Europe. I was just in one in Barcelona and thrilled by it. I like to shop that way. I like to be directly in contact with the guy who's selling my fish. And it's a way to bring the local uh, people to give them the money so that they can afford to live there and provide the food. Make it an actual market. Yes, make it an actual market. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well put. Yeah, so when you're not advocating for food, what are you doing? What am I doing when I'm not advocating for food? I'm taking a walk. I'm taking a walk in the woods. I really like watching movies, and I'm a, I'm kind of a movie buff. Uh, I I have a good friend who runs the Telluride Film Festival in Colorado, and he drops movies off on my front porch, and I watch them. It's a way that I learn about the world. Many, many documentaries, but I'm also watching Turner Classic Films from the 30s and 40s and, and absorbing the values that I think are truly American values that have been left behind. I'm trying to really imagine how we can get back there. And it's, uh, it's a way that I'd relax. If I could dance every night to French music, I would. That's exciting. Let's play a speed round of questions. Uh-oh. First thing that comes to your mind. I know you had an event last night, but what did you have for dinner last night? Did you not eat at the event you were at? No, no, <laughs> it was you were delicious. <laughs> I was at Maple and Ash, and I had the most delicious little rolled guinea fowl. And it was so tasty with 
a little kind of salad with vegetables with it, and you sliced it crosswise. And I just had never had anything quite so succulent and lovely, really, really lovely. Name an item on the Chez Panisse menu over the past 40 plus years that you're most proud of? Well, it would have to be mesclan salad. Probably baked goat cheese and mesclan salad because uh, we've had that on the menu really since the cafe began. We might have even had it before then downstairs. But I'm also very, very proud of the fruit bowls that we serve (laughs) because we are always choosing fruit, sorting it, finding the farmer who's just got that beautiful thing and then just serving it. We do a galette every single day with some fruit that is extraordinary. There's something about perfect fresh fruit that is extraordinary and, and I really didn't put that into perspective. I was doing an internship at the Four Seasons Hotel in LA and I had a big, tall Swedish chef named Connie Anderson. And every time when I was on the Garmage department slicing fruit, every time he would walk by, well, I learned my lesson the first time when he said, cantaloupe, did you taste it? And I didn't taste it. So I learned my lesson every time that first dice of fruit That's I do to taste lesson. it. Yeah. A great lesson. And still today, every time I, I'll i cut something, I taste it because I'm not giving someone a peach that doesn't taste like a peach. Exactly. Dare I go here? When was the last time you ate fast food? You don't dare go there. <laughs> I have eaten fast food that's organic. That I've done on occasion. Uh, but I don't look for something that's packaged. I like I could like fast slow food like somebody making a, a tortilla on, on the Kamal and filling it with some delicious thing and handing it to me. That's fast slow food and that interests me a lot. I like the engagement. I don't like the anonymous shelves in an airport that are filled with things that, that really are adulterated. I looked through everything at the airport in Chicago, and I had a couple of hours. It was very difficult to find anything. I could point you in the direction. There's a couple places. Are there? I need yeah, to know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know the Rick Bayless. The Rick Bayless is there. <laughs> Summer House, Santa Monica's there. It depends what terminal. I just saw that. Uh, oh God, I've forgotten his name. Just off the top of my head, who's got uh, Paul Kahn? Yeah, Paul. Yeah, there's yeah. a publican there, and then there's a little like snack place with just packaged stuff, but it's actually like better quality packaged stuff, like not what you see at. Really, but well, you'll have to point those out. I was just going around, just looking at packages, reading what was in them. I mean, there's nothing like traveling through San Francisco airport to some of those fresh, you know, the the what is it? Tyler Florence has something, and there's some of those fresh markets. They, Napa they Valley do Freshers. have Acme bread. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They do have I, I feel like I, I'm grocery shopping on my way back to Chicago when I go to the San Francisco <laughs> airport. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Well, I love the smell of an oak fire burning. I love the smell of rosemary, bread coming out of the oven. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. The smell of any kind of cleaning. A lot of people say that. Like Rocco Desperto just said, the smell of like ammonia and bleach, like cleaning. Because it's it's something that's omnipresent. 
in restaurants normally unless they're really making an effort to use, uh, you know, ecological supplies, uh, which we absolutely try to do all the time. Uh, and, but it's, it's people seem unaware of that, um, those kinds of aromas contaminating the restaurant, getting into the rugs, or, you know, when I open the door of a restaurant, I want it to smell good. I want it to just, you know, I want it to just be, be sort of enticed into the, to the menu. I want to just feel like something's happening in there. And very often it's either stale kind of contained smells or air conditioning or you know it's it's off-putting to me yeah what pisses you off in the kitchen when people don't speak well to each other when when people are treated without respect and and shouting orders to a dishwasher or you know it's everybody's has a part to play and uh we have to understand that, that uh, I really love a civilized kitchen. And what makes you happy in the kitchen? Maybe it's a civilized kitchen. It's a civilized <laughs> kitchen, but, but I, it makes me happy when I see people just being so careful about what they're doing. They're just focused, like it's the most important thing that they put that that slice of peach on the tart, just that way. And they know how to do it in there. It's like, it's like watching an artist work. As a movie buff, what actress would you want to play Alice Waters in a movie? <laughs> well, everybody would want Meryl Streep. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much. I just want to wrap up with a couple things here. You have your book, Coming to My Senses. That's out now. Do you learn anything about yourself in the writing of this book? Any discoveries? Many discoveries, actually, because I wrote it with two friends. One of them took dictation, and one of them uh, interrogated me. <laughs> and I, you know, it's very hard to remember about your life, and unless somebody is curious and asking you questions, you, you don't go deep enough into into it and I learned that both my mother and father were pretty radical I always thought my father was rather conservative uh, but they both were in very different ways trying to really live their life a little differently huh do you think that you grew up in New Jersey? I grew up in New Jersey in a very sort of lower class family. And my parents had a big garden because of the war efforts. Do you think that helped shape you in any Without way? Without any question. The fact that we didn't go out to dinner very much, ever, hardly ever. And that we all ate at home around the table. My mother sadly wasn't a good cook, <laughs> but she wanted us to have healthy food um, and in the summer it was glorious with tomatoes and corn on the cob and every once in a while we'd have a steak on a grill that yeah. my father would make but 
It was uh, just before the fast food came in. And so I had that really one foot in nature. I played outside all of the time. We didn't have television until way late. And I think that that gave me my my love of the outdoors, which ultimately gave me a love for food, real food that came came from that land, pizzas. So what is the secret to Alice Waters' success? The first thing that came to mind was not compromising. And I think it really is, in a way, that, that I, I don't want to to just say something uh, because it's politic for me to do that. I want to try and tell the truth always. And I think being completely honest and transparent about food has made the restaurant the success that it is. And always in that slow food way, wanting to win people over. You know, that I, I'm non-compromised, but I want you to taste it. I want you to taste it. Thank you for sitting down and taking time. I know you're quite busy, but I know from when I started learning about you at an early age through culinary school, through every single restaurant I worked in, I always and still and always will find it incredibly inspirational what you've done and what you continue to do. And even this conversation makes me want to to do more and do better of what you speak about. Oh, get ready for the 50th birthday of the restaurant. I'm ready. We might have to have an education <laughs> march from yeah, that in California great. from Los Angeles to Sacramento. Perfect. There we go. Thank <laughs> Free you. Free school lunch. There you go. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Quote. I don't really feel like a pioneer because I feel like these ideas have really been around since the beginning of civilization. The idea of taking care of the land, the idea of eating together, the idea of celebrating the harvest, of always eating locally. It's just been a primary right of civilization to gather at the table. Thanks again to Alice Waters. Find more on her at ShayPanise.com or EdibleSchoolyard.org. Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe, sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. We're switching it up a little next week. Alice gives me a recipe that has been on the menu of Chez Panisse for over 40 years. I'm going to cook it in my own kitchen and report back with step-by-step instructions. You can find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at, at BTPlatePodcast and we have a Facebook page. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And a very big and delayed shout out to my wife, Katie. She's been helping me since before Beyond the Plate was Beyond the Plate. And I could not have done this endeavor without her. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.